into God. Well, we can go ahead and dismiss our kids to, to Gospel Project. But as they're going there, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You can find that on page 910 of the Red Pew Bible. This morning we're going to be looking at verse 12 through verse 21. So, Acts 2, 12 through 21. Well, I don't know about for you, but for me, I think the hardest thing about winter in Wisconsin isn't the cold, isn't the snow or the ice, it's the darkness. Days in the winter here are short. Nights are long, and it can be difficult not to feel a little glum when you feel like all you're doing is living in the dark. This winter, I think probably more than ever, I have caught myself craving not just the warmth, but the light of a long summer day. I am looking forward to sitting in a lawn chair in our backyard and just soaking it up. And I have been loving the sight of looking up through my little window uh, in my study in the basement uh, at the end of a work day to see the sun hanging on for just a little bit longer each afternoon. Now, we all find ways to endure the darkness of winter. Some of us may even enjoy those long winter evenings. But there is another kind of darkness, a lethal sort of darkness, which we cannot chase away with a turn of a switch or by striking a match. It is the darkness of our own sin. This is a darkness that each of us is born into. Though we were all created in the image of God, with the purpose of glorifying him by knowing him and enjoying him. Because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, that image has been marred. It has been disordered. We are cut off from the light of God's holiness. We do not love him as he is to be loved. We do not worship him. We worship ourselves. We are as spiritual stillborns, each entering this world bound by darkness, having eyes that are blind, ears that are deaf, minds that do not understand, and hearts that do not beat. It's a condition that affects us all, and a condition which we cannot remove ourselves from, since it's a condition that extends to the deepest depths of who we are. We are held captive by this darkness, and yet we are captivated by it. We enthusiastically spin the affections of our hearts, affections which are to be reserved for God alone on lesser created things, desiring cheap pleasure over eternal joy. Though we are the victims of this darkness, we've also become co-conspirators with it, rebels against God. Naturally, we are, as Ephesians 2 describes, dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and by nature, children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, has not abandoned his creation to this darkness. As I read earlier from Isaiah 42, we see that God promised to send a servant, his chosen one, in whom his soul delights to bring light and salvation to the world. John chapter 1 clarifies 
that this chosen servant was none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is called the Word of God. And John explains that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, this morning, as we pick up back where we left off in in Acts 2, on what happened on the day of Pentecost, what we're seeing, what we're looking at, is how God did just that. How he brought light and life to a people who were formerly held captive by the darkness of their sin and their separation from God. But what we're looking at here is, is, is at God's word at work. And that gives us an opportunity to consider the way that God continues that work today. So if you would, please stand with me as I read from Acts chapter 2, verses 12 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. That is nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, as you may be picking up, uh, the day of Pentecost is undeniably important. Uh, as I was looking through, kind of trying to plan out my sermons and the schedule, I think we're going to end up spending at least four weeks uh, in chapter two alone. It's just that important of a chapter for the church. Uh, the day of Pentecost is important both for the way it manifested the authority and the power of Christ as he works in and through his church and for the way that it announced that, that a new and better covenant was in place. It was on this day that the power of the gospel was made clear in a unique an astonishing way. But I think that as we study this passage and as we think critically about what's happening here, I hope that you will see that the real wonder of this day was not the loud noise of the rushing wind from heaven. It was not the tongues of fire that rested on each of the disciples or the tongues in which they spoke as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. No. Instead, I hope to show you that the crowning jewel of this day 
was in fact that salvation came to the house of Israel. The wonder of this day is how God penetrated the darkness of men's souls with the light of Christ and brought dead hearts to life by working through his word. That is the beauty of the day of Pentecost. So as we look at our passage this morning, I I think the main idea of this sermon and of this text that I want to bring to you is simply as this, that God cuts through the darkness through the light of his word. God cuts through the darkness through the light of his word. Now, we have, I have three points for you this morning. Surprise, surprise. Uh, they are, sim- which are just meant to give you handholds as we make our way through this passage. So first, we're going to be looking at the confusion of the crowd. The confusion of the crowd. Second, we'll be looking at the sign of the Spirit. The sign of the Spirit. And finally, we'll be thinking about the purpose of preaching purpose of preaching. So let's start with the confusion of this crowd. Now the day of Pentecost was above all things a day of salvation, a day in which the power of the rule and the reign of King Jesus was put on display for everyone to see in spectacular fashion. We, we see it, as we, as we read this passage, we see it and we go, this is amazing. What would it have been like to actually be there? Uh, we've talked about it already uh, starting last week, and we're going to be talking about it today, and I think for the next two weeks we're going to be looking at it. Uh, we look at this and we understand uh, the significance of what's going on here because Jesus has already, to this point, prepared us for it uh, in the promise which he gave back in chapter 1. But the significance of this day was not immediately apparent to everyone who actually witnessed these things take place. In fact, Luke tells us that there, were a lot, there was a lot of confusion with the crowds, especially as to what all this meant. If we go back to verse 5, we see that the whole reason this crowd came together in the first place was because they heard this great sound like a mighty rushing wind. Uh, they recognized something strange was going on. It, it had gotten their attention. It had gotten their attention enough that they all had run to this place. They came to see what was going on. And when they arrived, Luke tells us that they were bewildered because each person was hearing the disciples speaking to them in their own native language in a way that they could understand. When they realized that the people speaking to them were Galileans, they became all the more amazed and astonished at what was going on. And so Luke tells us that they were saying to each other, what, what does this mean? Now in sports, we have referees who make sure that the game is played according to the rules. Now because games are typically played on a big field, uh, those referees typically use whistles and hand signals to communicate their calls so that even if you can't hear what they're saying, you can at least understand the rule that they're enforcing. So a baseball umpire, when he sees a strike, will you know, throw his, sometimes he really yells it, you know, but he, he'll point to the side to say that's a strike. Um, a basketball referee will hold up you know, three fingers if a player shoots a basket from behind the three-point line to show that, that that counts for three points. A football referee, you know, we all know, will hold up their arm in that Y uh, to, to show that someone has scored a touchdown and so on. <clears throat> Each game has its own rules. Each game has its own signals. So if you're not familiar with a sport, 
then those hand signals really mean nothing to you. Remember the first time I watched a hockey game? I had no idea what was going on. What was icing? Why does that matter? They're on ice. How does that? How, what, what's going on here? It, it, it's confusing. From the sidelines, all these moves that the referees are doing, they just look like bad dance moves. If, if it's only once you've had the game explained to you and you understand why the ref has crossed his arm or why he blew the whistle in the first place that you're actually able to appreciate what's going on and then really enjoy the game. You need an interpreter to show you why this call or that call matters. <coughs> Excuse me. From what Luke has indicated about the, re- about the reaction of the crowds, to what was going on with Jesus' disciples, it's perfectly clear that they were aware that something significant was happening here. But it's also clear that the crowd was having a very difficult time figuring out what that actually meant. As they saw this undeniable work of God's power, and as they heard his mighty works being spoken of and proclaimed, they were looking for an explanation. And Luke records two predominant responses uh, that the crowd has. First, we see that he tells us that they were looking at each other and they were asking each other, what does this mean? Now, Luke has already told us that this crowd was composed of devout men who had gathered in Jerusalem to worship God and to observe this festival, the the Feast of Weeks or Passover. Um, They had enough, as such, they had enough insight to understand that something amazing was happening here, something which only God could do. But they didn't quite understand the true significance of what was happening here. So they did what any one of us does when we see something and we don't understand the meaning of it. We look at the person next to us and we say, what's going on? What does this mean? Now, others had a less dignified response. They dismissed this mighty work of God and actually mocked the disciples, saying, they are filled with new wine. In other words, these people are drunk. Now, I've been around drunk people, and while alcohol will make you do lots of things, it cannot make you instantaneously learn a new language, let alone speak with greater clarity. Uh, If anything, alcohol makes you harder to understand. So alcohol isn't a plausible explanation for what was happening here. But to these skeptics, that didn't matter. Since they couldn't explain what they saw and what they heard, they dismissed the message and they dishonored the messengers. The confusion of the crowd and the reaction of these skeptics gives us, I think, a window in which to see the natural condition of the human heart. We can come face to face with the beauty and the glory of God that is displayed day in and day out in his creation. But until God opens our eyes and gives us new hearts, we cannot respond in a right way to him. The glory of creation falls on the sinner's heart like sunlight on a corpse, which cannot see the radiance of its light or feel the warmth of its rays. Without the Spirit of God to breathe new life into us, we are like statues that have the form of a man, but which cannot actually move or act or live. We're like the shackled prisoners in Plato's cave that see the shadows that dance on the wall in front of us, which, from which we draw all sorts of conclusions about the way the world works. But in the end, we are left to, when left to ourselves, we have no idea of the true reality that is outside and no desire for that either. 
So the response of the crowds to the miracle of Pentecost, like the response of the Jewish leaders to Jesus' miracle, shows us that we need much more than just a display of God's power. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that in order for a person to see the kingdom of heaven, they have to be born again. Not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way, according to the power of the Spirit who applies the work of Christ to the hearts of sinners like you and me. More than witnessing the reality of God's power, we actually need that power to work in us. Only then can we see the signs and hear the message and breathe in this heavenly air and live. So this is an act of God, a work of undeserved love, which he delights to do for the glory of Christ even today. So this is what to take from this is simply to understand that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if your eyes have been opened to the reality of your sin and to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, if you have forsaken hope in anyone and anything else and trusted in what he has done for you to save you, to wipe away your sin and to make you clean, to bring you eternal life, then you have experienced that work in your own heart. We are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. And this divine act we see... <clears throat> is accomplished by the Spirit through the Word, which is what we want to look at in our next two points. So, having looked at the confusion of the crowd, now we want to look at the sign of the Spirit. Peter must have sensed the mockery of these skeptics starting to take hold of the crowd. They don't have another explanation, so anyone will do. So in verse 14, Luke tells us that standing with the eleven... He lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. <coughs> Excuse me. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. What a way for the first Christian sermon to open up. As the crowds floundered around in their confusion, trying to make sense of what was happening, God opened Peter's mouth to interpret for them what was going on. And Peter does two things here in this opening part of his address. First, he explains what's not, what, what is not happening, what's not going on. When the skeptics of the crowd couldn't put their finger on how these Galileans were doing what they were doing, they just dismissed them as a bunch of drunkards. But clearly, their assessment of the situation didn't fit the evidence. First off, it's early in the morning, 9 a.m. Uh, these people haven't even had enough time to get drunk. Second, this is a group of people doing something that can't be explained as a normal thing. That much was obvious to the crowds by their own admission in verses 7 and 8. Third, even if it were the case that the church was in fact drunk, that still wouldn't explain the sound of the rushing wind from heaven which brought the crowd here in the first place. So that's what's not happening. 
Second, we see that Peter explains what is actually going on here. So in verse 16, we see that he offers the crowd a much more rational explanation of this undeniable work, one that accounted for everything that the people in the crowd had experienced for themselves, which stood not on the plausibility of Peter's own words, but actually on the very authority of God's self-revelation. Peter properly interprets the experience of the crowd, explaining this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So, so Peter is reading Joel and he's saying, hey, you know that prophecy that you all know and memorized when you were kids? That's happening right now. What you're seeing, what you're hearing is nothing less than God bringing that promise to pass. A promise in which God said he was going to pour out his very spirit on his people. Now Joel, if you've ever read the book of Joel, you'll know, is not the sort of book that parents like to read to their kids at bedtime. It is a book about disaster. It is written. It was written in a time of disaster. Uh, it was written in a time where people were facing famine and judgment because they had abandoned God. This particular passage that Peter quotes to the crowd is taken from a section in Joel where God is actually he actually promised that in the latter days he would restore Israel that everything that the locust had eaten would be restored and that he would bless them so that they would be satisfied. The point of Joel's prophecy was to call Israel to repentance and faith. It was a call to salvation and a promise that God was going to save his people and restore them, that he was going to bless them. It also announced the arrival of the last days or the final judgment, the day of the Lord. Notice in verses 19 through 20, we've got language like what we find uh, Jesus saying in Matthew 24 and then also in Revelation, images of blood and fire and vapor with smoke where the sun is turned to darkness and the moon to blood leading up to the day of the Lord, the, the final day in which God will judge the earth and deliver his people. Now Peter explains to the crowds here that they are, what they are witnessing is the very power of God keeping his promise, sending his spirit on his people. He's, he's leading them to understand God's own interpretation of his mighty works, which they have seen, so that they will see that Jesus Christ, whom they crucified only a few weeks prior to this, is in fact the Messiah, who suffered as an atoning sacrifice for sin, rose from the grave, and now rules and reigns at the Father's right hand. Peter is explaining to them that the former days is in which they lived under the demands of the law have come to an end. That grace and peace have arrived now in Jesus and that they have been announced and confirmed here at Pentecost by the coming of the Holy Spirit in power, enabling God's people to speak the truth. The coming of the Spirit here is a sign that Jesus is indeed the Christ. That the new covenant he forged with the shedding of his own blood is in effect and that salvation is free and available to all who call upon the name of the Lord. That is why the day of Pentecost and God's amazing work on it matters. It's a display of kingdom power, exalting Jesus as the fulfillment of God's salvation promises for his people. Now, Peter really doesn't explain here how all of what Joel says about the wonders in the, in the heavens and the signs on earth below, like the blood, fire, smoke, and the sun turning to darkness, or the moon uh, to blood, how that fits into the day of Pentecost itself. 
Uh, I think the simple explanation for why he doesn't explain that is simply because that's not his point. That's not what he's focused on right now. His point here is for the crowd who has witnessed this amazing power at work to see Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, so that they might believe in his name and so be saved. That's Peter's goal. The sign of the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost made an important announcement about who Jesus is, about how he fulfilled God's promises, how he secured salvation through his life, death, and resurrection. You know, the the day of Pentecost was actually a, a day that was traditionally associated with God's giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. And given what we read from passages like Jeremiah 31 and verses 31 through 35 in which God promised to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant he made with their fathers when he took them out of Egypt, not like the covenant which they broke, but a covenant in which God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall anyone say to his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. When we read Pentecost in light of what the prophets said about this coming day, I think we are led to conclude that the sign of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost marked a massive transfer in redemptive history. Uh, The day of Pentecost is so important because it welds Old and New Testament together in a powerful, definitive way so that we see how God was working to display His righteousness, securing our salvation through Christ, who fulfilled the law and secured our redemption. He is the one who secures peace for us. As Paul explains in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see the connection between that Old Testament promise, the fulfillment of righteousness, and the sign of the Spirit. All of that's happening here on the day of Pentecost. As we look at this day, how the Spirit came on the church with power, enabling them to be witnesses of Christ. We see how the Spirit likewise works in the lives of sinners like you and me to open our eyes to the reality of our sin, to expose us to the glory of Christ, and to work in us to apply His salvific work to us so that we may live in Him and He in us. God pierces the darkness of sin with the Spirit who testifies to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which leads us to our third point this morning, the purpose of preaching. Now, if it's true, as we've said, that the Holy Spirit is the one who opens people's eyes to the reality of who Jesus is, then it's only natural for for us to ask, I think, well, why did Peter need to speak? I mean, if this is God's work, why do people need to get involved? I, I think that's an important question. After all, God brought clarity to the crowds through 
Peter's explanation that what they were seeing and what they were hearing could only be rightly understood through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that isn't to say that the success of Pentecost depended on Peter, but we do see modeled at Pentecost that God has chosen to use preaching or the, the proclamation of the gospel as the main means by which he opens the hearts of men and women to the truth. The proclaimed word, accompanied by the work of the Spirit, is how God has chosen to penetrate the dark hearts of sinners with the light of Christ. If we go to Romans chapter 10, verse 13, Paul actually quotes this same promise from Joel chapter 2 that Peter quotes to the crowds here in Acts chapter 2, where it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he asks, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So God clearly has a purpose for preaching. He works through the proclamation of the word to bring light and life into the hearts of men and women. And we see that displayed in living color as we read Peter's sermon here. Now it's been said uh, by some, uh, some scholars that the book of Acts is really just the book of sermons, and I think that's right. Everywhere you look in this book, you're going to find the church preaching and proclaiming the good news of salvation through, through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, some of the clearest explanations of the gospel that you will find in the Bible are found in the book of Acts. The main directive of the church is to be the body of Christ on earth, proclaiming the good news of salvation in all the world. Think about the commission that Jesus gave us, gave his church. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice that as Jesus sends us out to proclaim this message, he sends us with his spirit, who is the one who makes the seed of the gospel take root in the heart of those who hear and believe. As we look at Peter's sermon, we see how God worked to bring this cloud, crowd together in the first place, how he inspired Peter to speak, how he worked through the proclamation of the scriptures, and how he used Peter's witness to open people's eyes to see that that was what was happening in front of them. God doesn't need us to achieve his gospel ends, but he has graciously chosen to employ us in this work. This is our chief purpose here in this world, to be salt and light in a dark world, making our appeal to others to find salvation for their souls in Christ. It's, it's a wonderful privilege that God has given to include us in this work with him. So we have a reason to be here as people. We have a reason, really, as a local church to be here. We're an embassy that has a mission that has been sent uh, to bring news of salvation to a lost and dying world, to be the body of Christ on earth, where people actually get to witness the power of the gospel which is at work in us 
and where they receive a call to be part of that as well. The purpose of preaching is to draw people to Christ. I've sometimes thought that faith in Christ would be in some ways easier if we had been there to see his miracles, to to hear him speak, to witness his death and resurrection, or to have been here at these great displays uh, of God's power like on the day of Pentecost. Have you ever thought that to yourself? Man, if I had just seen it, it would be so much easier to chase away these doubts that sometimes haunt my mind. But clearly, those things, as, as convincing as we might be, as, as they might be, those things in and of themselves are not enough. After all, the Jewish leaders and the crowds in Jerusalem who put Jesus to death on the cross saw his miracles. They knew it. They had heard him speak. They even witnessed the aftermath of his resurrection. What I, what I think the crowd's reaction to the day of Pentecost reveals is that, as one theologian puts it, miracles are not self-authenticating, nor do they inevitably or uniformly convince people. There must also be the preparation of the heart and the proclamation of the message if miracles are to accomplish their full purpose. The gospel took effect in the darkened hearts of men and it takes effect in the darkened hearts of men when God shines the light of Christ into them through the preaching of the word and the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the pattern that we see throughout the whole book of Acts and it's the pattern of how God works even today. So what do we do with that? Well, three practical applications for you to take from, the, from what we've seen this morning. First of all, soak yourself in the scriptures. Soak yourself in God's word. Scripture is a word act revelation. The Bible leads us to understand that God is at work in the smallest details of your life. He determines all things for his glory and for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. The scripture also leads us to understand that God does not leave his redemptive acts up to their own interpretation, as if we have to somehow just strive to figure out what God's doing. Rather, Scripture tells us how God interprets those redemptive works for us in His Word. We see that on the day of Pentecost. The power of the Holy Spirit filled the church, but the significance of that work had to be explained to the crowds through God's inspired Word. So as we look at the day of Pentecost, we see this display of God's power. And we see the right interpretation of it through his word. A word, act, revelation. That is no accident. If we want to live as faithful witnesses to the glory of Christ, we must soak ourselves in his word since we cannot proclaim what we do not know. So soak yourselves in the scriptures. Second, be a proclaimer of the gospel. I kind of wrestled a little bit as I was thinking about the purpo- like my points and thinking about the purpose of preaching. Because when I say preaching, you guys all think, well, I'm not a preacher, so this doesn't apply to me. But we are all called to be proclaimers of the gospel. We may not all be called to be pastors or elders or teachers, but we are all called to be witnesses of the good news of Jesus to the world around us. Whether in word or in deed, your life is preaching a message, whether you're aware of it or not. 
Jesus himself has called us as his people to be witnesses for him. And a witness tells others what they have seen and what they have experienced. Our job as witnesses for Christ is to point people to the good news of the gospel of grace. That will change the way that you look at the world if you embrace that mission for your life. You will no longer look at the person behind the counter at the grocery store the same. You will not look at someone walking to their car the same. You will not speak to your neighbor the same way. You will care for them more than you ever did before. Because God's passion for the glory of Christ now flows in your veins. And he's given you an opportunity to share that glory with others. He's given you a task to do. To share the best news we could ever have with a world that is desperately lost in confusion in a hateful darkness. So be a proclaimer of the good news. Third, trust the word to work. Trust the word to work. When you look at Peter's sermon, you don't see your typical three-pointer like what you've heard this morning. Today, we've really just made it through Peter's introduction in which all he really does is just to quote scripture to the crowd and announce that God has fulfilled this in your midst. I think we sorely underestimate the power of God's word to work. Sometimes we feel that we have to add to it. But the reality is, is that God uses the proclamation of his word, that he authorizes that, and that he works through it by the power of his spirit. That's why when you hear preaching, you should value preaching that is exposing the word to you and allow that to impact you and to trust as you speak that message to others that God is going to work in their life as it's worked in yours. God worked through the preaching of his word and he does the same today. A farmer plants his seed, he waters and weeds his garden, he labors over it, but in the end, the farmer himself has no power to make that seed grow. As a church, we have been given a mission to proclaim the word of the gospel. We've been instructed uh, in how to labor in the gospel of uh, in gospel love over one another. But in the end, God, and only God, can save souls. And we've seen how He uses the work of the Spirit through the proclamation of the word to do that. We need to trust the word to work. Now, this morning we've made a little headway into the amazing work that God accomplished on the day of Pentecost. We've seen how God works through his word, through the Holy Spirit, to bring light and life to the darkened hearts of men. This is a reason to give God thanks. Because if he's opened your eyes to that, you have every reason to praise him, because it was his act, not yours. At the same time, we have also seen that we have a role to play in that work. And my prayer is that God will give us strength to be faithful witnesses of Christ as Peter was. And that as we do, that that work will bear great fruit. Let's pray. Our great God and King, we thank you that you have not abandoned us to the darkness of our own hearts. But that you have penetrated it. That you have waged war over the darkness that has held us captive. And that you have brought light and life to us in Christ. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit who enables us to walk according to your commands. We thank you that you have not just 
put a law over us, to rule over us, to condemn us, because we know we can't keep your law left to ourselves, but that you have actually given us a new heart, that you have written the law of Christ on our heart, that you've given us your word and taught us how we ought to go, and that you have also equipped us with your grace to live knowing that you have secured a righteousness that is not ours, but is given to us as a free gift of your grace. And I pray, Father, this week that that gift would reign in our hearts, that, the, that it would fill us with joy, and that that joy would overflow onto the lives of everyone you bring into contact with us this week. Help us to seize opportunities to make much of the glory of King Jesus in the lives of others. And that as our light shines before men, as they see those good works, those gospel works worked out in our lives, that they would glorify you as you ought to be glorified. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.